This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America in Houston, Texas. Please join us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. for Holy Communion, and visit us on the web at holytrinityrec.org. Enjoy the sermon. This morning's sermon comes from our epistle lesson, Romans 6, 1 through 11. We'll talk about being alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's a term that I tend to use in theology, which is called antinomianism. Antinomianism simply means anti-law, and it's been levied against many people over the years who have tried to preach the gospel. Uh, One of the most well-known of these is Martin Luther. When he came out and started to declare the gospel, the idea of justification by faith, he was labeled by the Roman church as an antinomian. The thing is, is that Luther and others like him aren't really anti-law. It's just that the gospel of grace that we find in scripture and that is preached faithfully comes very close to being antinomian. It's a charge that can be levied against those who preach it, those who study it, but it could never be leveled against someone like or a group like the Pharisees or some of the more legalistic churches that we find even today. However, when we find that level charged, we have to go and we have to ask ourselves, does that person really mean what he thinks he means? And when you look at Paul, he can very much sound like an antinomian, but he always has to back up and then further explain what it means to be under the grace of God and what that looks like. As we look in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, I'm going to expand our reading on the epistle lesson today because I don't think you can understand Romans chapter 6, 3 through 11 without better understanding the context in which Paul is talking You actually have to back up to uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 20, and to the end of the chapter. And Paul says the following. He says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that one little phrase in there when he talks about where sin increasing and grace abounding all the more is a very dangerous statement, especially for broken sinners. It's a message almost too good to be true that even in the depths of our brokenness, in the depths of what we have committed against God, grace abounds and overpowers that sin. But then, as Paul does so often in the book of Romans, he sets up these arguments. It's almost as though he's arguing against uh, an invisible opponent. And as you open up chapter 6, he says the following. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So it's kind of like 
saying that if one aspirin's gonna do me good, maybe five will do better. It'll get my headache cleared up quicker. Or in today's food-crazed world, if one piece of food is supposed to have all these wonderful benefits for you, well, I'll just eat double that amount and I'll really be well off. And this is the kind of reasoning that this invisible sparring partner that Paul has brings up. Why shouldn't we continue to sin so that grace abounds all the more, as you just said, Paul? And Paul goes on and he uses another phrase that he uses quite often in Romans. He says, by no means. And then he goes into a very lengthy explanation of what it means to be Christian. And against maybe the advice of most of my homiletics professors, I'm going to take off more than I can chew possibly, but I think it's necessary that we go through this paragraph together to understand what it means to be united to Christ. So he goes off to say, well, of course not. I'm not saying that you should go off and sin as much as you want and then hoping that Jesus will, you know, that Christ will uh, forgive you. Uh, this is kind of like nonsense. It's why are you going back as the dog goes back to its vomit kind of an argument. How can we who die to sin, he says, still live in it? And this is an apt description against those who think that salvation through Christ is little more than what we call nowadays as fire insurance. It's something that we come to believe in Christ, but we still think that we can live the way we want to and how we want to without any repercussion. But Paul goes deeper than that. He says, why do you think Jesus died on the cross? Why do you think that you who died to sin still live in it? And then as you go and you look in chapter 6, he says the following. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into, a death, into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So in these two verses, Paul brings us back to a pivotal point in our relationship with God. He points to our baptism. And there's a little phrase in here that I want you to keep in the back of your mind. And as we go through, I'll point out similar phrases. But he talks about the idea of being baptized into Christ. Baptism in and of itself isn't anything. But Paul is trying to make the emphasis here is that when you were baptized, you were put into union with Christ. There is now this relationship that you have with your Savior that you didn't have before you were converted. And he says that you were baptized into his death. That some way, baptism, as Paul says, puts us in relationship with the death of Christ. Now, there's a lot of de debate as to what this means. There's some modern scholars, or some evangelical scholars especially, that take baptism here as meaning something else than getting wet. But majority of Christian history is seem to lean towards the fact that baptism here means baptism. It means that initiation act that we have as Christians that get, brings us into the church. 
And he says that it was more than simply getting wet. It was actually a burial of some sort. Now, tuning into my inner Baptist, the thought of immersion here comes up rather than sprinkling. There's a bit more of a picture when a person goes under the water that there's a death that has occurred, a death that has occurred to the life of sin, and that when you were raised, as it says in verse 4, that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So in this picture of baptism, we find the idea that when we go into the water, or when we're sprinkled, or when we're, however it's done, there's a death that occurs. But then there's also a life. As Jesus was raised from the dead, so as we're united with Christ, we have a newness of life ourselves. So Paul here is giving us an introduction of your salvation is more than just a simple forgiveness of sins, as though that was simple. It's a new life. There's a new set of rules. There's a new way of living. Verse 5, he goes on to say, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Again, we find this dovetailing of the individual Christian and of Jesus himself, that we're united with Christ. And that if we're united with him in his death to this world, we're also united with him in his resurrection. And he goes on to say, we know that our old self then was crucified with him. Paul likes to use this word in some older translations of scripture uh, it's not, uh, the term old self isn't translated as such. It's actually translated as the old man, meaning the old way of doing things. He's not necessarily talking about an individual, but he's talking about an old world concept of who we were. That old person, that old, the old proclivities of kind of marching to the tune of this broken world's drum. That we would go out and we would naturally rebel against Christ and the Father, even without blinking an eyelash. But he says that's all changed because as we died in his death and were brought to life, something radical has happened. It wasn't simply just the forgiveness of sins. It wasn't simply, as he says in chapter 8 of Romans that we are adopted as his children it says that we're no longer enslaved we are no longer enslaved to the things that used to bind us you can probably go around and we can all have our own stories of what it meant when we became a Christian and we could probably relate that there were things that changed in our life that previously didn't it could be that you didn't do drugs anymore. It could be that you didn't drink anymore. Your path, in some way, radically changed. In fact, this brings up the idea of this one person by the name of John Newton. If you all know who this person is, he used to be the foremost slave trader probably in 
the uh, country of England, he was also known for writing Amazing Grace. And he also became its most, uh, slavery's most ardent adversary after he became a Christian. He actually became a pastor. And he, along with William Wilberforce, worked tirelessly to end slavery in England and their territories. So that's the kind of radicalness that you can find in a relationship that a person has with Christ. It may not happen all at once, but there's this sense that the shackles have been broken, that slave, slavery to sin is no longer true. Yes, we may still do it, but it no longer binds us as it once did. Verse 8, he goes on to say that if we have died with Christ in this manner and have no longer been enslaved, we believe that we also live with him. So now he emphasizes the life that we have in Christ. He says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And he says that the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. Now back in verse 10, it's a very interesting little phrase here. We talk about the idea of dying to sin once for all. Jesus didn't have to die multiple times. Paul here is trying to, seems like he's trying to contrast Christ's death and what it meant with those of the Old Testament sacrifices. If you remember back to the Old Testament, there was always a sacrifice going on at the temple. There were daily sacrifices for the nation of Israel. There were sacrifices in the morning, sacrifices in the evening of lambs. We also had sacrifices during the day when individual people sinned. They would bring their sacrifices to the temple in order to sacrifice for their sin. And then, of course, we had the Day of Atonement, which was a cleansing for the year for the Jewish nation. But there was all this spilling of blood for the wrongs that the nation has committed so that they could stay in communion with God. And, there was no, and it was not meant to be an end-all. Of course, when we look in the book of Hebrews, for instance, it says that the blood of goats and bulls was never meant to take away sin. It was useless. It was meant to point to something. And that something was Christ. So when people saw Christ hanging on the cross, in retrospect, the idea of the Old Testament sacrifice for sin should have been very apparent. The idea that one man could die for many is something that Paul expounds upon in Romans chapter 5, that the one died for the sins of the many. And then he says that he did it once. He didn't have to do it all the time. He didn't have to do it again and again and again and again. So this idea of somehow Christ being present in the Mass as our Catholic brethren would say, and that they repeat his death in that sacrament flies in the face of what Paul says in other places in Scripture. Christ died once, and he died once for all. But he didn't just die. He says he lives. And he says that the life he lives, he lives to God. 
This isn't to mean that at one point Jesus didn't live for God when he was on this earth or before his crucifixion. But there was a change. There was a change in covenant. There was a change in Christ's mission. He went, as we say in the creed, he came and he was ascended. He sits at the right hand of God and he waits to come again. So Christ's life was a newness in some sense and he lives it to God and it's put in here by Paul so that he could say what he says in verse 11. He says, so as Christ lives for God, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here again we have this idea that as Christ goes, so we go. That our relationship with him is more than simply friendship. It's more than simply uh, him being our, our sacrifice for sin. For in some way, we are united with Christ in a way that's probably beyond words. But Paul understands this idea of being in Christ. When God the Father looks at his people, it's been said that he doesn't really see the person in his sin. He sees his son. And that's how close the unity is between the two. In fact, if you go to Ephesians in the first chapter, Paul uses this idea of being in Christ. It's a phrase that he likes to use in all of his letters, but especially here in the first chapter of Ephesians. He says, for instance, that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and blameless before God. He goes on to say later, he says, that we have been blessed in the beloved. In verse 7 he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, meaning Christ. Verse 10 it says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So all of creation will be united in him at one point in time. In Ephesians 11 he goes on to say, in him we have obtained an inheritance. The inheritance here of course is our future life at Christ's second coming. Something that we are waiting upon. Verse 13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So because of being in Christ, we have the Spirit of God as well. And that Spirit marks us as being his own, and also as being as what we would know as a down payment in modern terms, and that he's a down payment for the future of being with God forever. So when Paul talks about considering ourselves being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, he's saying, look at your relationship to God. Look at your relationship to who Christ is. You must consider yourself as Christ is now. One who has been separated from sin. One who has been freed from the enslavement of sin and are now free. Free in the truest sense of the term. And free to live in a way in which you can love God to the fullest. 
And if you notice in this verse, it doesn't say consider yourselves dead to sin or else if you don't, God's going to break your legs. This is the way a lot of legalistic people would look at this verse. It's the idea that, yes, Christ did die for you, so what are you going to do for him? What exactly are you going to stay away from in order to please God? That's not what this verse is talking about. Paul is saying that you've been given a gift. It's not just the forgiveness of your sins, but it's you are in an entirely new life. What you have known before no longer applies to you. The ways that you used to deal in your world no longer applies to you. You've been set free from that. You've been set free from the brokenness. You've been set free from the addictions, from the pain of what sin was dragging you into. But you are now alive to God. And he says you are alive to God in Christ. The Christ that can never be taken from you. The one who died for you. It is because of Christ that you can now live the way that you were always meant to live in relationship with God. As Paul goes on in Romans and as he alludes to maybe some of his other letters, he breaks the world up into kingdoms. He breaks it up into your former kingdom, the kingdom of this world, which means the kingdom of death, this kingdom of this existence of living apart from God relationally, of being always in rebellion. But then he says, we as slaves of righteousness, as he goes on to say in chapter 6, are now under new management. We now live in a new world. We live in a new existence. This is why we see, especially now, as dividing lines are getting sharper and sharper in the mainstream media or even in media on the Internet, and in all the blogs and social media, lines are being drawn. And this should come as no surprise for us. The world naturally hates God. As much as they don't want to think that, they do. We as Christians understand that we offended God. We understand that we're sick. The world doesn't. But we have also know that we've been set free from that sickness, that evil. And it's because of that that the world hates us. But yet God keeps us here. He keeps us here to continue to spread the message of his good news to the world. And that we are to continue not only in message but in deed to live alive to God not by ourselves and not by our own work, but doing it in Christ. Amen.